Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This week, our guest is Dr. Susan Friedman. Susan has been helping us to celebrate the milestone of reaching our 150th episode. The day that we recorded together, we talked away the afternoon, so I've divided our conversation up into four parts. So far, she's given us a lot to think about. Last week, the conversation was centered around the ABCs of training. We looked at nonlinear analysis, a topic I find very intriguing. But the theme of our discussion last week was novelty. How do you distinguish between something that's just a new shiny bobble and something that's really worth exploring in depth? Susan shared a key question. How will it change what you do? When I first stumbled across clicker training, it very definitely changed what I was doing. It was a new idea that was worth pursuing. So some shiny new bobbles are definitely things that you want to take a good look at, and others are just fun to play with. But then Susan raised a question about the transactional, and some would say coercive form, that some of the procedures that people developed as they were trying to use positive reinforcement in their teaching. She raised a question about that transactional way of of using positive reinforcement. And Dominique asked a question of, well, doesn't that describe all positive reinforcement? So that's where we'll pick up again in our conversation. So that's the other thing to say is, you know, not everything that is intriguing is, I guess it's just another way of saying, how will it change what you do? Not everything that's new and intriguing is necessarily relevant to the specific animal training we're doing. On the other hand, it may be, it may be. Alex knows um, from my parenting um, presentation, which I think you attended when I taught it. Yeah. And because I often have occasion to say this, one of the things that I don't like about, I don't give it a name, right? Old school behavior analysis, just for, for lack of a better term, is with humans is it's very transactional nature. I have what you want. If you do what I want, I'll give you what I have. That super transactional, like it's a business transaction with kids is something that I have really developed a much softer, much more negotiating, much more positive reinforcement oriented way of interacting with children. But what's the difference? Is it the difference? Is it that you, that it's a two way conversation? What's the difference? Because you know what you've just described? I mean, the words may be harsh, but that that would pretty much you know, describe positive reinforcement? Right. It's a common criticism. And it took me a long time to come up with the word transactional. And Alex, you may have given it to me. This is something that I've been trying to find the key word for, for 40 years. And somebody said it to me and it was like, wow, that's the word. You know how that happens? That is like the word that embraces everything that I'm trying to describe can be done differently with children with autism, with parenting, with interacting with students. So the difference is not not even so much the consequence end of things. That may even stay the same. It's the devotion to the antecedent setup. So I have what you want. So you're always ahead of the kid. You're always ahead of the dog. You're always ahead of the giraffe. And you're arranging the antecedents to get the behavior that you're looking for, the uh, reinforceable behavior. So positive reinforcement is still quite steady and delivered by the 
person empowered to control the reinforcers, whether it's the parent, the trainer, the boss, whatever. But the difference is mostly in the antecedent arrangements that uh, if I, let's start with a kid and then we can move to the dog, it's the same. Um, If I know that last time we went down the toy aisle, little Leah had a meltdown for wanting everything. And so I had to remove her from the store. What I said to her was not, you know, you lost your negative punishment. You've lost your opportunity to be in the store. Next time I'll go with your sister and not take you. It would be more, I see that I have not taught you had to be in front of things we wish for, but can't have immediately. That was my responsibility as your teacher. Let's come back next Tuesday. And between now and next Tuesday, I'll come up with a program for us to practice how to go down toy aisles or, or bakeries or clothes, clothing stores. Um, and we'll catch you being good by walking by and just expressing, I wish for that. I wish for that. And that's what we did. So the antecedent arrangement is much heavier with this point of view, the less transactional point of view. And um, it means that you work with the kid and then you make this big socially reinforcing deal out of it. You set up all the stuffed toys in the basement. And as she walks through each and flicks her hair, I say, you did it. You did it. Oh my, eight, nine, 10 whatever, and then positive reinforcement is delivered mightily. You know, I would bring the male person in, (laughs) the the woman at the shop go, we're working on a program, watch us go down the toy aisle. So the, that kind of thing, heavy antecedent arrangement, and then go, go back next Tuesday and do it right for a big celebration. So now we can translate that to the horse which I know that you both do to the dog, you have much more antecedent arrangement than just positive reinforcement trainers who lean 99% on consequences to select for the behavior. We're setting up the antecedents so that there really isn't a lot. The, The smart bet The rational bet is to do the right behavior for the reinforcer because of all of the work up front you've done. That's a little bit of a different picture. So maybe instead of saying, I have what you want, which was the original uh, sentence before, is I've prepared you. Mm -hmm. I've prepared for how to get it. And if not it, then five other very reinforcing outcomes. And yeah. So the grownups are talking uh, is always followed by reinforcement, but you start up with that heavy antecedent arrangement. First, the animal has to contact what you've got, where it comes from. You might only ask for it under very easy conditions when there isn't another horse going by or a favorite trainer. It's not in the crossroads of the barn. I'm thinking of the beautiful Cavalia weekends that we spent together. Um, so you're going to, and by antecedent arrangement, you're going to make doing the right behavior so very, very easy. Then you reinforce it. We're selecting with reinforcers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you start upping the difficulty. You don't just throw animals into the deep end. So one of our core values is mm-hmm. the errorless learning mindset which doesn't mean there are no errors, but it means we've done so much preparation and antecedent arrangement, there are much fewer errors in the course of the learning path. And and then you move it out to more complex environments. So we start in the basement with all of the stuffed animals, and then we move it to the grocery store because food's not that big a deal. And then we move it to the toy store. That's I, I think a really high level use of our science and the connections to dog training are obvious, you know, that with due respect, with due respect, that uh, caregiver of that um, German shepherd would need to avoid the corrections where that a core value would need to take on very relatively much heavier antecedent arrangement. 
and fading in difficulty. The corrections tend to be needed when you start at the deep yeah. end of the pool, right? Yeah. So if I'm going to teach grownups are, are, are talking in the crossroads of the barn, when the less preferred dog, a dog, less preferred horse is being walked by or the less preferred trainer and already having trained. So, you know, exhaustion is in play. Motivating operations have been abolished, et cetera, et cetera. Then you're going to yank that horse, hmm. but you don't go there. And that's what I told Leah. This was my mistake. I put you in the deep end of that toy aisle at Chopka. We have some work to do mm. and the work will be fun. Very reinforcing. Yeah. So that's the difference. And um, just to put a final punctuation, because I hear myself going on um, <laughs> and want to hear your reactions is sure enough, I presented at the Tag Convergence Conference last weekend with a behavior analyst named Greg Hanley and his presentation was on how he has changed the way that he is working with kids with very difficult behavior problems, temperance, meltdown, violent, the kind of kids that were also my background, by letting them, instead of melting down, guess what he lets them do? Just walk out the door. Wow. And that if he's got his antecedents and reinforces arranged really well, no deep ends of pools for kids who are already having a hard enough time sitting there, et cetera, et cetera, mm. that they will come back. And so it connected to my parenting talk, my dislike of the transactional, and it connected to Ken's no buoy. Yes. Yeah. So it is always enriching, but it has nothing to do with leaving the old stuff behind or saying it, it was wrong. Susan was wrong when she taught the ABCs because I heard five minutes of mm. non-linear. I mean, it's worrisome. So what has been bothering you two? <laughs> so, so where I want to take this is something that's that's been uh, buzzing in my head for the uh, for a little bit while we've been talking. Values, core values. They're clearly very important to me that they are an anchor. But core values could take you, could lead you, could could can core values and an, and a strong adherence to what you think are your core values trap you, keep you from seeing things that are of value that would be useful. There would be better ways to train. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, not mine, not my core values, but other people's, other people's. Well, of course not <laughs> my core values, other people's core. Of course, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's because of their values that they're not seeing the light, but we, we have the right ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We are, yeah, of course, of course, which is, of course, the conundrum because, you know, the, this, what we're talking about, when people are looking at other shiny balls. Well, maybe they're looking in that direction because their core values do not align as strongly with ours. And so they're, they look at what we're doing and they say, that's not, that's not my cup of tea and they keep right. moving on. Absolutely. And I, I think the, the learning is to be able to say, you know, and, and I've seen this in the horse training is to be able to say, yes, I grant you that works, but it's not my cup of tea. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, wrong, as in gravity does not exist. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you've chosen is worse, inferior, than what I've chosen. It's just your core values are taking you down a completely different path that I'm not prepared to go. Well, even in our own community, in the clicker training community, I mean, we've had some fascinating discussions about, exactly. you know, using positive reinforcement only uh, versus, and how 
sometimes positive reinforcement not well used can be very frustrating to the animal and very not a very enjoyable experience and how we can sometimes use I'm trying to think of a very mild uh, negative reinforcement. Uh, well, S Susan was describing it with the rhino. Right. Yeah, but even, I mean, we've had so many of, uh, and in our course, we we give a lot of example of negative reinforcement that people do use and they don't even think about it really as negative reinforcement, but it really is. And so, you know, some people, and I'd like to find one of those examples. Alex, do you have anything that comes to your mind of negative reinforcement that, um, I mean, there's like so many. Well, every time you let an animal say no. Right. Which is one of our core values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here I have this example that I, when I used that, when, when I was teaching Bonanza, who doesn't like to go in the shower, didn't like to go in the shower stall. And at first I was only using positive reinforcement. I was clicking and treating him whenever he did one step towards the shower stall. But then I decided to reward him with every time he would do one step, we would back up. I would ask him to back up and that went much quicker, you know, because with his behavior, he could also, right. um, and, you know, I hope I'm not getting into the rhino example of before, but anyway, it's a kind of example where asking a horse to back up sure. is negative reinforcement in the case where what you, where you are asking him to back, to step in is a pressure for him. It's an uncomfortable, it's a, it's an aversive place. Right, it's an aversive, aversive. I mean, he place. was not having it. It was, he was just slow to go in. And it was obvious to me that it was because that place was not an enjoyable place for him. And so asking him to back up is negative reinforcement. So it's an example of using negative reinforcement. It's not abusive that I'm asking him to back up when he's done something that I like. And I'm asking all of this with a lot of, um, kindness and very soft and someone who would be looking at us would probably say well what are you doing are you dancing with them or something so in our own community sometimes people say oh I never use negative reinforcement you know that's not part of my values and yet yeah. we see a lot of positive reinforcement that is non-enjoyable to the animal. And so even in our own community, we can see that we could get trapped into, I never use negative reinforcement. I only use positive reinforcement because that's what we want for our animal. And for me, you know, when Jesus said, look at the emotionality of your animal rather than is this procedure positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement for me that was useful because it's the animal that will tell you it's not the procedure that is necessarily the uh what's the word in english the the la, the panacea of having a good life for the animal because you and especially because the human part of it you can do it so wrong. Well, that's another way of asking, how would you know? So I see procedurally, I'm strengthening escape behavior or postponement behavior of an aversive stimulus. How do I know? How would I know? And then we can look at the animal. And Alexandra, you and I had that conversation about some of the techniques that you were using that may appear to be negative reinforcement. And I remember saying to you, this was years ago now, yeah. you know, my husband presses on my back when he wants me to turn right while we're dancing. So I'm moving away from the left. I never felt that that was mm -hmm. an aversive stimulus I was escaping. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to discuss. The problem is... <laughs> When not everybody is reinforced by the discussion, they're more reinforced by the mm. declaration of authority and dismissal. And we have to keep working on building that community of, of people who 
can look at something different. We're doing something different from one another and say, why are you doing that? Tell, tell me what you're missing. I would have gone another way. Tell me what you're thinking. I mean, wouldn't that be an improvement in the world yes. at large? Yes. If we That's started a- there. And I mean, it's as much of a reminder for me as for anyone is, is to yeah. assume competence first and then let the person disprove it rather than to assume everybody else is incompetent except you and they have to prove their competence typically by how much they agree with you. <laughs> well, and even, you know, someone who does use punishment, yeah. would they say, because we always say that for us, the paramount thing is the welfare of our the animals under our care. You know, for me, I'm willing to do so many sacrifices for that. You know, my own needs will be disregarded and the need of the animal will be paramount to me. But I'm pretty sure that most dog owners, even if they do use punishment, they will say that they have their dog or their animal's welfare, you know, at heart. So it's so difficult to when you start talking about the core values, you know, and I know what you mean, because for me, this informs all of my decision. And if I had not learned about positive reinforcement training, I would no longer f- own any animals. It, I would have no interest because for me, it's not fun. And so I would not have animals. I would have no dogs, no horses. I would be out of there for at least 10 years now. But because I have this tool now that is, for me, it's in line with my values and it's making it very enjoyable to be, to take care of animals and, you know, modify behavior this way, I I have animals. But um, it's a big subject, core values. It is. And I think it's, we can add that to our list of key questions, which is, what what value is being expressed by your doing it this way? Because if you were to ask me pretty much at any age in my life, <laughs> pretty much from the time I could talk and walk, if you ask me what is your number one core value, I would say control. To give me as much control over my outcomes as possible. And then as I gained power, to give the animal as much control, to give the child as much control. I'm always watching for where we can allow animals to have that voice. And so I really feel kind of lucky to be alive at this time where giving animals control over their own outcomes is really of interest to people. It is reinforcing to people because if I had been espousing this like in my mom's generation, they would have thought I was crazy, although that was her core value. And so luckily, I was able to come out relatively unscathed by a school system that restricted your natural need and desire and competence for control, because she was always in my corner saying, they're crazy. (laughs) When you're in the principal's office again, they're crazy. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. And so, you know, it, it, it was very protective of me. So thinking about core values and encouraging people to think, is it about using only positive reinforcement? Mm-hmm. Because that's not one of my core values. Mm-hmm. But giving animals a voice in the dialogue, making partners, having them have co-control, be co-pilots, Yeah. And that has always enabled me to consider the full breadth of consequential influences because positive reinforcement only. Fear free. Mm. It's not one of my core values. Yeah. It's like you have to keep peeling the layers, peeling the layers of me to get to what what you truly mean when you say, you know, I want to use positive reinforcement. Why? You know, what, why? Well, because 
when I use positive reinforcement, my learner feels in control, that, that they, they are controlling my behavior. Well, you know, that takes us a step deeper. It gets us closer to your core value of control. My core value is being in the creative process. <laughs> and that is, you know, that is what drives me. I love that. So my driver, we want to put it that way, is being mm -hmm. in a creative process, is learning and expanding. And mm -hmm. I deeply believe that that is a core value for everybody. Because look at, you know, look at all the gardeners, the knitters, the cooks, the people who, who have families, you know, the build houses, et cetera, et cetera. That being in a creating things, building things. Yeah, but Alex, you could be creating things and make animals really miserable. I think being in a creative process is something that can resonate with many people. It does. And one of the things that I've always, so with the clicker training, I was really lucky in being in the right place at the right time to grab hold of this idea that was using a marker signal and positive reinforcement and being able to apply it to horses. And I had the enormous fun of seeing how you could make it work for horses. Now, who, the, the, the idea that I'm the only one who gets to have that mm. fun just would disturb me immensely. So what is important to me is that when the people that I am interacting with, that they are also in a creative process. That it's not me saying, this is how you do it. Follow these instructions. You give them control over their outcomes. <laughs> I give them control over their outcomes. It's a really cool. And you do that for your for your animals yeah. too, because you keep saying that they they co-create yeah. behaviors with yeah. you. That's right. So it comes, yeah, it comes, yeah. it comes to control. I do like being in control. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then we have to take apart. Well, what do we mean? It's just a word. And I just wrote on a Facebook um, response. So what we, we have to peel back the layers. When I talk about control, I don't mean mine over other animals. I mean, everybody in the room should participate in this wonderful meal. Everybody should have yeah. as much control over their own outcomes as possible. And then if we teach these core values to children, like a core value of I can control the door from hitting your face, or I can control the use of um, fuel by riding my bike. If we teach them that it's not just about getting, you know, people, it's funny in our society, we, we, we think so little of humanity <laughs> that we assume given control, people will do bad things with it. Yes. And so we work really hard to keep them from having control when what they do with their control is another teaching opportunity. We teach those values. We teach the skills so that if you give them control to do good things because you've taught them good things bear the reinforcers, right. then you don't have to be afraid of animals in control. So yeah. it's, it's a very teaching. volatile word to be yeah. sure. And it takes yeah. a lot of time to peel back the many layers. It's teaching choice. You don't you don't take a small child into the ice cream store where there are 50 flavors and say, what flavor ice cream do you want? Right. You say, do you want chocolate or vanilla? And right. then you gradually teach them how, how to, to cope with more and more and more and more. Right. So that right. they're not paralyzed by the choice. Right. So these are all the nuances, all the subtleties that we don't always have the time to um expose you know we're lucky we get to check in with each other every so often and yeah, yeah. take it another layer you know i just wanted to mention that thinking about the german shepherd again when you talk about the creative process and how you love to see the horse doing horse things that often people don't want horses to do and suppress i do know of a very skilled dog trainer who wants her german shepherds to look suppressed. So that reminds me when you talk about 
maybe what another person is doing doesn't tap into my core values. But if I can interact with that difference between us, as though it's not a hierarchy, you're ranked lower than me now, that would be very, very beneficial. So why do you want your animals to be suppressed or look suppressed? Is there another way to get it other than negative reinforcement or harsh corrections or, yeah. I mean, there's always a lot to talk about. Yeah, it's it's around that word in the horse world of respect. Oh, yeah. You know, I want the horse to respect me. And so there is this cluster of behaviors that you want to see in a horse that is, in quotes, respecting his handler. And we could look at that and say, well, I would like those things too. You know, I would like, if I ask my horse to back up, that he backs up easily out of my space because he's big. <laughs> and right. it'd be nice if when, if, if when I need him to back up, he backs up because he could be running over the top of me otherwise. So, you know, yeah, I'd like that too. And you, know, you could go down the list of things that, that they want. We could say, well, we all agree that these are good things to have. This is basic space management around a large animal. So great, we want those things. Now, how would you teach it? Right. How can you get But there? now if we look at the systematic nature that I'm always trying to give people rather than yeah. the answer, we started with operationalizing a label. We said, what does it look like behaviorally? What behaviors under what conditions? Once we know what that is, then we can ask the next question. How can we train it? And of all the many ways to train a behavior, is there one that leaves the animal in the least intrusive arrangement? That is the way that leaves the animal in the most control of its own outcomes. And if not, if we can't, then we move up that hierarchy or we add a little more pressure. But the question should always be asked because that's one of our core values. But also because, you know, when we say we want to give them control uh, over their own outcome, a lot of those outcomes are accessible through us. And so that means sometimes that, or it can look to someone who is, who has a different mindset that the animal is controlling us, is trying to control us. And they are, they're trying to control us. And we're okay with that because we think it's great that they've learned to use their behavior to control their outcomes. And so if we are the ones who are providing a lot of the outcomes in a way, and we, I know I feel like that all the time that my dogs are training me. That's the way it should feel. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So there's that whole quagmire, that black hole of, well, but I'm the parent. So what does parent mean? What is that label? I'm the caregiver of this dog. Um, What is that being the steward of an animal, a kid? What does that mean in terms of how we behave, how we feel, how we think about behavior? It's my job to keep kids safe and to teach them to be able to manage the things life will throw at them, to be able to find Easter eggs, to be able to acknowledge unspeakable woe and stay there for a while. You know, so what is it to say, I'm the caregiver of this dog, uh, giving it control over its outcomes. I mean, when I first started teaching in the parrot world, one of the loudest lay experts said, if you follow Friedman's way, you will have birdie bedlam And (laughs) I wore that as a badge of honor, Birdie Bedlam and Animal Anarchy. And I always say for a 60s (laughs) chick, you know, these are reinforcers to me. She meant to punish me. (laughs) Animal Anarchy. Yeah. But that's just a profound lack of knowledge about how behavior works. Behavior is for a reason. We behave to be effective. And we're harnessing those natural laws. We're not stealing them from the dog. We're not enforcing them where we don't need to use force. We're taking the natural laws of behavior, the tendency for animals to behave for effect and arranging the environment so that the effect they're behaving for is contingent on 
the behavior that will make them successful in the environment that they're living. So we do have to grapple with that when we raise kids, when we have, we're the boss of a team, when we're raising horses and dogs. What does it mean to be the parent? You know, and um, was it uh, Meek, uh, the great wolf uh, researcher who coined the term alpha wolf and then did this incredible recanting on YouTube saying, if I could take back every textbook that espouses this erroneous alpha hierarchy among wolves, I would, but I can't. So all I can do is to tell you, I didn't mean alpha in the sense of dominator. I meant alpha in the sense of the parent, the responsible male and female parents and the things they need to teach those those. Um, young wolves, pretty stellar recant. And you can find it on YouTube. M-E-C-H, I think is how he spells his name. So, you know, and that's another thing. Can we give our experts safe safe Mm -hmm. passage to change their Mm -hmm. mind? To say, I used a word that led you astray. Let me do, let me teach this differently without getting pelted with, Mm -hmm. You're not an expert because you grew. Yeah. Yeah. These are the when things I, that bother me. The, the Maya Angelou, when I was young, I did the best I could. And when I knew better, I did better. Right. Which I dearly love, though I don't think that's really exactly what she said, but it's irrelevant. It's a great, it's a great line. But all of this also makes me think that the outcome of this is the one when you when it's done well. What you see as one of the outcomes is greater freedom for all the individuals involved. So, you know, my barn is a perfect example of that. My horses have enormous freedom. The doors are all open. They can move around the, their entire, you know, habitat. They can they, they hang out in the barn aisle, they can go out in the arena, they can wander out in the barnyard. There are this merging of horse space and human space. There's not a separation. There's not a wall separating us. There's this merging. And, and so that gives them greater freedom. But then I have greater freedom too, because I get to enjoy being able to go out in the barn aisle and there are my horses. They're not locked away behind a barrier. They're not separate from me. They're right. in my environment. So, so, so because of the training, we... We both enjoy greater freedom. So does that mean that if you have an animal, that there's certain freedom that you are not able to give them? It's because you've trained badly. You haven't, you know, so let me think of an example. You have um, friends coming over. There are three dogs and... Your ideal would be to have all the three dogs play in the yard, but there's this one dog that, you, you know, there's just every time there's another dog, um, he, he or she explodes and it's it can be dangerous. And so you've decided to manage it in a way where this dog will not be free to play with the others in the backyard. He will be maybe on the porch on the screen porch, looking at the others, and he will be fine there probably because he doesn't want to be with the others. He likes the distance, but he doesn't have the same freedom as the others. Take the word badly out. You know, you when you say, is it because I've trained badly? Well, there's a judgment if ever there was one. So what it may mean is that in this particular instance, the you've done the task, the energy analysis of what the what would go into training that dog so that he could have the, the same freedom to interact mm. as the other dogs. And mm. you've chosen a different route. You've chosen a management tool instead of doing the additional training. There's nothing bad, you know, it's not, that's not a judgment call. It's not that you were a bad trainer. It's just you've made a training choice. But it's that 
running with that interpretation of what does freedom mean? Because it too is a construct, not a yes. thing. Yes. And that's where I was going with the meek. I think his name is Alan with that idea of parental control versus dominator control. You know, there are certain things. I mean, I, the same bird I was talking about before to trim his nails, because I, I keep trying for 20 years and haven't figured out a, a cage or free space arrangement that files his nails naturally. And, but I never stopped trying. I'm, I still keep considering that. So I put him in a towel and clip his nails while he's toweled. Whereas the other two birds, I can just say, give me your foot. <laughs> you know, and they're like, so that's an example in my life where I just don't have, I have chosen not to have the allocation of time, resource, and energy to teach this guy to give me his foot. Rather, I catch him up in a towel and I do that as well as I can do it, given the limitations of that I've taken away his freedom. His, his freedom would motivate him to escape me, but I still make the choice that for this particular husbandry behavior, it's shorter and easier for all of us to just be in a towel, clip those nails, set you right up, let you get your, or, you know, rouse your feathers. I offer my hand. This is the, how do you know? How do you know when you're taking too much out of the trust account? Because for my convenience, I'm not training him a skill. I'm going to just take the behavior is when I take the towel off of him. I offer my hand a few feet away and he runs right onto my hand. And then he pushes his beak against my mouth, which is always a moment of terror (laughs) and gives me a kiss. Makes a great African gray mimic kissy sound. So You know, there's a lot to unpack there. I've taken away his control over his preferred outcomes. There are limitations. We're not talking about force-free or positive reinforcement only. That is a really high standard to meet. And what I worry about and why I don't espouse it is I think what's going to happen is people are just going to be motivated to hide the choices where they are using punishment. They are suppressing a behavior. They are removing choice and control over outcomes as I am when I towel this gray. So what do you do with that? You know, you give permission to have those choices that I'm making about when I'm going to maximize the animal's control or the kid's control and when I'm not. And then you have to ask, how do I know when it's gone too far? How can I read behavior sensitively enough to see that now when I go up the stairs past this guy's cage, he pulls back on the perch as I pass rather than making kissy noises with his beak through the cage to get me to open the door for free free time. I think that's more where we would benefit spending our time teaching people to ask, how do you know when you've pulled too much out of that trust account? What does it look like to have a behaviorally bankrupt relationship with an animal? And how do you see the least discernible evidence of that beginning so you don't have to bankrupt it? Rather than say, the standard is use positive reinforcement only, which frankly on this planet, I think is not possible without driving people who are doing very normal, acceptable things at normal, acceptable rates from hiding it from us because they think the standard is positive reinforcement only. Yeah, or becoming so discouraged and frustrated that they give up and quit or or they feel the, 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 the judgment and the blame because, oh, you know, I. I, use, I didn't use just pure positive reinforcement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot in there. People could say to me, but why don't you just teach him? And my answer is because it would be difficult and it would take a lot of time. So I just choose to do this kind of quick and dirty. And I watch very carefully the bank account. And I, and I try very hard. Um, you've heard me say often, Dominique, I know from LLA, 
say it's not the absence of aversive stimulation we're going for. It's a ratio that there should be, pick a number, for every 10 aversive experiences, there should be 50 positive experiences where the animal's in control, accessing those outcomes effectively, those positive reinforcement outcomes effectively as they were born to do. It's not about the absence and presence. It's about the, the ratio. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that's a more useful way of looking at it than to say there should be no aversive stimulation. I just can't this planet will not deliver on that promise. This planet will not deliver. That gets us back to where we started mm. a very long time ago, which was with resiliency. That's right. And I get asked that often is, you know, if you don't provide aversive stimulation, this is one of the rationales mm. people who use more punishment than I would think is necessary, um, is that I'm building resilience. If the animal doesn't experience getting knocked down, how do they learn to get back up? How do they bounce forward? You hear that from parents too. That's right. And I mean, my, the, my answer for me, it's very, very clear. You teach it by approximation with an errorless learning mindset, fading in the mm-hmm. difficulties. You don't start by just dropping them in the deep water. So teaching resilience, industriousness, persistence, all those things we want, for example, in a search and rescue dog or a search and rescue human, you don't start there with those really lean schedules of reinforcement and those really tough terrain and the hard decisions because every environment is new. You start by teaching a scent in a box in your basement with consistent continuous reinforcement. And that none of this is, Susan and Alex said it was okay for me to put a a twitch on my horse and uh, three men and a boy hold him down while we trim his feet. No, that's not what we're saying. No, I think the both of you have dedicated your whole life to teaching the opposite. And people will misunderstand because it's a lot to understand. It's a lot to unpack. It's a lot of words. And we just need to keep opening the conversation where we can to try and make sure that the misunderstandings don't take very long. People, I see often people will say, well, you know, Friedman said, and I'll I'll look, I'll look at my family and say, but I wish I had because it was really good. (laughs) It works both ways for, for the wrong stuff, the right stuff. Yeah, that's part of what being a a service provider, a teacher, Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that just today is that you put yourself out there to teach anybody anything, and you've got to take all that other stuff with it. You've got to have a a thick skin, you've got to learn how to not empower the hurtful stuff, and how to reconsider whether you really did say it poorly, and you can do better next time. And I mean, it is a constant it's a constant effort. It's constant approximations. You know, I write a set of instructions. I present it to a horse handler team. I see what they do with that set of instructions. I think, oh, isn't that interesting? That's so not what I intended. Let me, let me refine. (laughs) Let me add a few more steps because I see the I see how my words are being interpreted, and that's not what I intended. So let me see if I can clarify it. Yeah, but the social media has become really hard, I think, for public people. Um, And a lot of people are actually reconsidering being in a public life. You know, I'm thinking here, for instance, in politics, people are saying they, you know, they're withdrawing because of all the criticism, the harshness of the criticism on the social media, it's, it's worse than it's ever been, you know, yes. and the more anonymous, of course, the more harsh it is very often, but we're at the end of that pendulum, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Mm. I think, it, yeah. you know, it broke through a whole new repertoire of nasty and mm. it's going to be hard to get that back in the box. Um, I think, but it's, yeah, it's a challenge we have to work on and it's endless, (laughs) right? Did anybody ever think it wasn't going to be endless challenges on this planet? (laughs) 
that's what behavior is for. That's what it evolved to do, right? right? To allow us to tackle those endless challenges and hopefully be effective much of the time. Much of the time. And one of the things that that I so appreciate about our conversations is that you can, you're so good at taking all of this chaos of ideas and different ways of looking at things and talking about things and, and finding the core, I, I don't know that I want to call it simplification, but clarification. So that we I agree. Got, you know, something to grab hold of that provides good guidance and that that allows us to reach out and explore new ideas, Mm -hmm. but it gives us an anchor from which to look Mm. at those ideas. And so Susan, I just totally so appreciate you're spending the afternoon with us. And I've been looking at the clock thinking, oh, we've been greedy. (laughs) And that this is going to be far more than our 150th. Um, episode that if we keep going, we might have to carve this up to get you into the 160s. I I love you both. I love you both. You enrich my thinking and are so validating, (laughs) so challenging. You know, you're really the complete protein of (laughs) friends and colleagues to, to spend time with and to stretch a little bit with. I really appreciate the work that you do and the contributions that you make and that you included me. You picked me. I feel like Sally Fields (laughs) at the uh, Academy Awards for anybody old enough to remember that faux pas that got made into a terrible meme. But it's just really great to um, spend this 150th with you. I know how much hard work it takes to to keep Keep evolving what you offer, what you think, what you do. So love, love, love you both. And thanks so much for including me. Well, you are very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Susan, for celebrating with us. (laughs) My pleasure. If you want to learn directly from Susan, you can find her at behaviorworks.org and on Facebook at BehaviorWorks. I'll just end this four wonderful, wonderful sessions with Susan by saying thank you, Susan, for this just great conversation. I do so value our friendship. So thank you for joining us for this milestone celebration. And thank you to all of you who have been listening to these podcasts. Dominique and I are very much looking forward to creating many more episodes. There's still so much that we want to explore so many really fun ideas to chew on. So until next time, stay safe and have fun with your animals.